broadcast from the Black Lagoon. Hi, this is Brandon, and I'm here with my missing link between fish and man, Zach Moore. How are you doing, Zach? Yes. <laughs> Holy smokes, have I heard those three notes more times than I wanted to over the last two days. Yes, I'm doing great, Brandon. Uh, happy to be here talking to you about the creature from the Black Lagoon on the podcast. Yes. From the Black Lagoon. Well, we are we are the hosts, and this is some special material that we have given to our good friend Marcelo J. Pico of the Talk Film Society, and they're going to originally be released, as far as I understand it, they're going to be originally released as exclusive material for Patreon members of the Talk Film Society, and they will eventually be released in their main feed. So you guys are listening to it first as patrons. And uh, in case you guys don't remember who Zach and I are, <laughs> uh, right now we're recording. It's February 19th, 2019. And last summer, last fall, Zach and I did Halloween H4O for the Talk Film Society. And uh, we were so grateful to Marcelo for giving us an avenue to to branch out from Star Trek because Zach and I know each other from Star Trek fandom. And so Marcelo granted us a place where we could publish our episodes on Halloween and uh, release it to a whole new audience. And we were so grateful. We said, look, we're going to do some bonus content for you. And, you know, also based out of this Halloween idea, Zach and I have created a new podcast called Franchise Fatigue, not Franchise Fatigue, Franchise Fatigue, where we basically do what we did with Halloween and we cover all the movies in a film franchise. So as our gift to Marcelo and a thank you to Marcelo, we are going to cover the three Creature from the Black Lagoon movies in a couple of little episodes for you wonderful patrons of Talk Film Society. And we want to thank you for your support of Talk Film Society because we love what Marcelo does and we love what his team does you know they cover some great podcasts they do some great articles on their website but i mean we're preaching to the choir here if you guys are patrons of the network you know exactly what it is so this is just a thank you to you guys and a thank you to marcelo so very much and uh so we're going to kind of do this in the same format that we did our halloween podcast and my good fish over here zach he's got some trivia for us zach did you want to start off with some trivia for creature from the black lagoon i do so, <laughs> Creature from the Black Lagoon uh, was the final monster to be introduced in the Universal Horror Cycle. Now, these are these these stay back to the twenties. If you want to go that far back with uh, Phantom of the Opera and Hunchback of Notre Dame, that's uh, starring Lon Chaney. Those are silent films. But then it really got started in nineteen thirty one with Dracula, Bela Lugosi, and then it went all the way to the mid fifties with the Creature from the Black Lagoon. And his trilogy are the last movies to come out. Uh, there were there were a couple of crossover movies in between. Uh, uh, and at the same time as this trilogy, but uh, Creature Walks Among Us, which is the third of this trilogy, was the last film in the in the horror uni- uh, universal horror uh, film cycle of, of the first half of the 20th century. So Creature from the Black Lagoon, right? Where did this idea come from? Well, produ- producer William Allen uh, was attending a dinner party during the filming of Citizen Kane uh, when the cinematographer Gabriel Figueroa told him about the myth of a race of half-fish, half-human creatures in the Amazon River. And then Alan went on to write the story called The Sea Monster 10 years later, uh, partly inspired by Beauty and the Beast. And then um, Martin Zim expanded this into a treatment, which Harry Essex and Arthur Ross wrote as The Black 
Lagoon. So that's the the origin of where this story came from. Because unlike those other monsters like Dracula, Frankenstein, werewolves, and the Wolfman, this is an entirely you know original monster. It's not based off a book or or anything like that. Like 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 you know Mary Shelley Frankenstein and Bram Stoker's Dracula. Right. This this is unique uh, to Universal movies. So okay. Uh, so Dracula- I had a question before you go too far here. So are you saying that? That this has nothing to do with the Blue Lagoon is I thought the Blue Lagoon was a prequel to this. It has nothing to do with the Blue Lagoon, Brandon. Thank you for clarifying oh. that for everyone. Okay, so I'm, okay. we will not be covering the Blue Lagoon in the podcast and the Black Lagoon. Different colors. Okay. Uh, so, <laughs> so, uh, so like it's not one of those trilogies like the Black, Blue, and Red Lagoon series no. of movies. No, okay. no, you might, it's not like it's not like Clash of the Titans, Wrath of the Titans, and Remember the Titans. That is a trilogy, so I recommend people watch them in that order when they rewatch the Titans movies. Uh, so moving on, uh, <laughs> is Titan uh, E a part of that one? Titan, <laughs> Titan After Earth? No, I don't think so. Okay. Uh, so uh, Jack Arnold was the director of this film, and uh, he said, "quote It plays upon a basic fear that people have about what might be lurking below the surface of any body of water. You know the feeling when you are swimming and something brushes your legs down there. It scares the hell out of you if you don't know what it is. It's the fear of the unknown. I decided to exploit this fear as much as possible. So th- I mean, we'll get into it when we talk about it. But th- 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 there's a lot of jaws to be found uh, in-, in this movie. We'll talk about it when we get in our discussion. But th- that is kind of flash forward to you know Steven Spielberg's." on Jaws as well. So, Creature from the Black Lagoon, it was originally produced in 3D, uh, and it was polarized 3D, which is the 3D we get today, and also the red and blue 3D that was uh, big in the 50s. So, you know, the proper way to watch it would have been uh, with the polarized 3D, which aren't different colored lenses, uh, which are like the lenses you see today when you go to IMAX and stuff, and that's why there's so many shots of like things coming at the camera and things like that, because this is, mm-hmm. you know, uh, I, I've never seen it in 3D. You know, I have it on DVD, so I just watch the, the normal 2D versions. Uh, but once you rewatch it with that in mind, you kind of understand why certain shots were the way they were uh, in this film. Yes, I got to see it in 3D, which was really cool. Um, so recently at the Galaxy Cinemas, I guess it was a few months ago, probably closer to October, so four or five months ago, uh, they had like some kind of a 3D retrospective at the Galaxy Cinemas here in Regina, Saskatchewan. And for some reason, a couple of the movies were movies that were not originally in 3D, but had been changed to 3D. Like they had Top Gun and Wizard of Oz as a part of this um, this festival, which is weird. But they did have Creature from Black Lagoon, and I took my daughter because I'd never seen this in 3D, and it was really cool to see it in 3D. And, you know, we'll probably get into it as a part of the discussion, but I'll let you know later what my daughter thought of the film when we saw it in the theaters. <laughs> okay, so. great. Great. So the film was actually filmed in two separate locations. Uh, it was majority all the above land dry scenes were filmed in Hollywood, uh, but most of the river and underwater sequences were shot in Wakula Springs State Park uh, near Tallahassee, Florida. So they kind of split both coasts uh, making this film. And uh, Julie Adams, who was the lead actress, uh, she, she used to joke that no matter how well she acted or what role she had in other movies, she will always remember for her role in Creature from the Black Lagoon, which is true. I mean, she's one of those iconic uh, horror uh, scream queens of the time. So mm-hmm. uh, she just and, uh, passed away recently, I think. Didn't she? She did actually. She 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 was ninety two or ninety three, so she had a good long life, and and uh, she did pass away just recently, uh, probably just weeks before we were recording this podcast. So R.I.P. Mm-hmm. Julie. Uh, and uh, there are two different stuntmen who played. 
creature, the creature from the Black Lagoon in the first film. Uh, one was Rico Browning, who played the creature when he was underwater, and uh, Ben Chapman, who played the creature out of water. And there has been some different discussions about how the suits were painted. You know, it's black and white, so we never really know. Uh, we only have their words to tell us. But uh, there are some reports that the underwater creature suit was painted lighter, kind of like a yellowish, so it'd stick out in the water more. And the above water suit uh was like a darker green because in in honestly watching the movie it really does look that way because whenever he's underwater he looks like whitish and when he's ever above ground he above above ground above water he looks dark but you know there are conflicting reports on this so we'll never know (laughs) you know but but it, it could go either way um now, uh, Rico Browning, who played the creature underwater, uh, he was a professional diver and a swimmer, and uh, he had to hold his breath up to four minutes of time, uh, uh, up to four minutes of a time, underwater because Jack Arnold's logic was uh, being being a, a gill creature, uh, there wouldn't be air bubbles or anything, uh, so they didn't want to to show bubbles coming up from the creature. Uh, yeah, so the that costume did not was last into the second yeah, movie. <laughs> no, that did not. Right. So the, this <laughs> costume was designed uh, without an air tank, so he just had to hold his breath and, and did a great job down there. But yes, as you said, Brandon, that did not continue uh, to the second and third uh, films. So, uh, so, so basically, this guy could have been competing with uh, Tom with Cruise. Tom Cruise. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> we just uh, covered no. Mission Impossible for our franchise fatigue. We did. We got we got uh, Tom Cruise on the brain. So uh, <laughs> now, Rico Browning and Ben Chapman—they uh, actually never met working on the film. As I said, oh, wow. uh, the, the uh, underwater stuff was filmed in Florida and the land stuff was filmed mostly in Hollywood. Uh, so they didn't meet till 20 years later when they both attended a convention, <laughs> you know, like a horror convention celebrating the movie. <laughs> so that's kind of bizarre. And uh, Ben Chapman, he was only in the first one and, and the above ground, uh, above, I keep saying that, above ground, above water, the land creature from the Black Lagoon was played by other actors in the next two movies. But Rico Browning went on through the whole uh, trilogy. Now, as far as the look of the creature, uh, Millicent Patrick created the design of the creature, uh, but Bud Westmore, who was the head of Universal's makeup department, uh, took credit for the creature's design. So she she went uncredited uh, for her design for several years because just Hollywood big names throwing them around. Uh, the Westmores were a big uh, makeup family, and they you know they went on to do you know any like a lot of famous makeup. You know Michael Westmore, we know him from Star Trek. Brandon and I being mm-hmm. Star Trek fans, so they're all. Uh, part of that same family, but the uh, the creature's appearance was based off uh, uh, the legends of sea monks and sea bishops. Uh, those were you know uh, in, in the seventeen hundreds, sixteen hundreds, you know sea monsters and whatnot. Uh, you know there's wood cuttings and drawings, so that's kind of that, that's what uh, uh, some inspiration came from that for the for the creature's uh, design. Sea monks now, and sea bishops. What kind of sea churches do they have? <laughs> I'm sure they got it's it's like a little mermaid under there, Brandon. They got all kinds <laughs> of stuff going on. So. Uh, I no, I thought this is pretty crazy. In the scene where uh, the creature in his first kill, when he when he kills the uh, the natives in the t- in the tent there, uh, uh, the uh, uh, the uh, the actor uh, Bernie Gosler, uh, who who played the the first native who, with the machete, right? Mm-hmm. Uh, he was supposed to swing at the creature. Creature was supposed to block his hand and then kill him, as we see in the movie. Uh, but during the rehearsals, uh, the uh, he uh, Ben Chapman, who's playing the creature, missed because he couldn't really see very well in the costume and the machete went and hit him in the head, but the, the costume was so thick. It did not, uh, go through or, or hurt him, but, uh, <laughs> the machete wasn't that sharp and the thick rubber, uh, was pretty thick, but if not, they probably would have killed Ben Chapman <laughs> making this movie. So if you think about that next time you see that scene, um, and speaking of costumes and whatnot, uh, you know, uh, the, the two male leads, David and Mark in this film, uh, they wear different scuba gear, uh, David wears two tanks. Mark wears one, and this was a way 
for people to tell them apart when they're underwater yeah. because they're wearing masks. I'm like, who's who now? <laughs> you know, so I thought that was a smart way to, uh, uh, to, to tell the guys apart because in a black and white movie in murky water with two guys with masks on, you can't tell them apart. So there you have it. Um, now, we were joking about the, the theme music uh, at the beginning. Da, da, da. Da, da, da. Da, da, da. <laughs> so, uh, <laughs> so film scholar David Schechter estimates that this tune gets repeated around 130 times in, in the this movie? movie. Yeah. Oh, yeah I, so, I do not and doubt I believe it. it. I do not doubt it. And there, now there were three composers uh, for this movie. It was Henry Mancini, Herman Stein... And Hans J. Salter, and they were told uh, from the from the producers. I assume we want to hear the creature theme every time he's on screen. So he doesn't. There is not one time he appears on screen without hearing a variation of that theme. And you know, it gets stuck in your head too. You know, I mean, I, I, I you know, da, da, da. <laughs> all jokes aside, it's you know, we know it right here. We are seeing it uh, sixty years later, and. Um, as for what happened to, to the creature suit after uh, after the movies, uh, he did appear as Uncle Gill on the Munsters, uh, as as the, the, the Gill Man. So uh, that is what happened to the costume after that. And also, uh, horror and science fiction writer for Famous Monsters of Filmland, Forrest J. Ackerman, he bought the mask and the claws uh, from a young man who was using them as a Halloween costume because Universal just threw them away after the trilogy cool. was over, and uh, they were recovered. They were recovered. From the studio dumpster by a janitor who gave them to his son to wear for Halloween. So Jeez. I mean, uh, over over time, the pieces have kind of been restored and found. Uh, but that, uh, that that's just it's crazy to think about. You know, it's stuff we put in a museum today. Back in the day, they just uh, they just throw it away. And uh, finally, that's there's crazy. been a lot of talk. There's been a lot of talk about remaking uh, this movie over the years. Uh, John Landis uh, talk, was talking about making it in the '80s. John Carpenter as well. Uh, Rick Baker was going to do uh, the creature design uh, for the 80s, but uh, that just kind of fell through. And uh, Guillermo del Toro was talking about making it. Now, Guillermo del Toro did eventually make The Shape of Water, which is kind of his own version of a sequel uh, to this movie. And there was talk about it being remade for the Universal, the Dark Universe, which had <laughs> the mummy and nothing else. Um, and we'll talk about remakes and stuff later because I have my own ideas about that. But uh, but th- th- this is this is... To, to me, you know, it's kind of tying trivia and commentary. Uh, this is like the one most underutilized monster because he's in these three movies. Uh, he appears in uh, Monster Squad, uh, the Gill Man, as they call him there. Uh, but that's it. Like, there's been no remakes, no endless sequels, no reinterpretations. You know, there had, you know, Dracula, Frankenstein, the Wolfman, dozens and dozens of versions of those guys, but not the creature from the Black Lagoon. So there you go. Yeah. I think that's part of the reason that, that this. Uh, particular monster holds a special appeal for most people is because it's it's there's so limited amounts of it and you know like like we we didn't get like an abbott and costello meet the creature from the black lagoon or anything (laughs) like that like we did with the frankenstein and dracula and stuff like that so um i think that's really interesting and you know this is one where i've only seen the sequels twice now i I saw them once many years ago and then i just saw them here in the last couple days um but the first one i'd seen quite a few times and uh you know it's one that i always thought was quite interesting as well and i mean like i've got a creature from the black lagoon poster on my wall and you know in my in my bathroom i've got a small metal version of the poster right above my toilet and you know so i don't know it's one that i that i like as well and so this has always been a fun movie for me so um but i can't remember my first exposure to this i don't remember the first time i saw it zach do you remember the first time that you saw this 
I, I do. So this is my dad's favorite Universal Monster, and therefore it's become my favorite Universal Monster. He had those model kits back in the day, so he had like a Creature in the Black Lagoon model, like the Aurora model kits. You know, they have all the monsters up. And mm-hmm. uh, I remember we used to. There was a video store in Houston called Audio Video Plus, and this was like the coolest place because it had like it's in the height of rentals. Uh, when you, and they had this 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 uh, unmatched library of VHS tapes. <laughs> so I remember we went there and we rented. I remember renting the first one, and then it eventually we rented the other two. But we, I remember we all went. We all rented them from this place. Uh, yeah. We sat down and watched it, and I just thought it was great. I saw it when I was a younger kid, and uh, eventually saw the sequels. Um, and we can we, you know, we'll be talking about all three of them. But uh, but yeah, this 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 is my favorite Universal Monster movie, just period, because it's it's late enough. Right, where it's not like because even like Dracula, look at Dracula, like wow, this is a real dated movie. Like it's historically significant, but is it entertaining to watch today? In my opinion, no. I don't know if that's a mm-hmm. hot take or not. I mean, Bela Lugosi is cool in his performance, but like that's pretty much all there is to it. Like like this has a as we joked about a musical score. It has some pretty good action. It has underwater stuff. So so it's it's, it's you know it, it is of the time, right? It is very fifties, but at the same time, it is a lot more modern than pretty much any of the other Universal monster movies. And it being the last series, that makes sense. But to me, this one definitely holds up the best out of any of mm-hmm. those. See, I, I like a lot of the movies that we got in this era. Uh, you know, in the fifties and whatnot, you know, the, the atomic panic, you know, like them, you know, and mm-hmm. stuff like that, like these, these big animal monsters, like giant, giant bugs and stuff like that. Like, I kind of like those movies and I think, I think they're a lot of fun. And to me, this kind of fits in, it fits more in that genre rather than the traditional universal horror monster movies of like, mm-hmm. you know, like, so there's the Wolfman, there's Frankenstein Dracula, uh, the Invisible Man and the Mummy. Are, you know, those are all kind of the same type of monster movie. And this fit feels to me more like those giant bugs and whatnot. Cause it's a, it's a giant fish man that's like mutated and whatnot. Didn't it's, mutate. It's a missing link between the two versions, Brandon. It's a missing link between those two kinds of movies. How appropriate, right? Yes, absolutely. Um, but I can tell you, uh, I can't tell you my initial impressions of the film. I don't remember, but I took Aubrey to see it for the first time. And, you know, when we saw it, she's eight years old and we saw it at the theater and, you know, she there was a couple of times where she was quite frightened in this movie and so i think that the movie still holds up for a younger audience and you know the film's rated g it's not too violent um i don't know maybe i'm just getting old but i didn't enjoy it so much when i saw it in 3d because of the sound like the sound in the theater was really loud and that theme song like was, it was like oh it was hurting my ears in the theater this the audio was not set up properly so that did take away from my enjoyment i actually did enjoy it I, so like this time here, I, I enjoyed it as much as the first time that I saw it. I'm sh- like, or like the, the previous time that I saw it, because I'm like, okay, it's good. The volume's not too bad. It was really something to do with the audio at that theater that really turned me off for the last time I watched it. And I'm like, this is not that good, but it is. I enjoyed it. I think it's a really good movie. Speaking of the audio, there, uh, I'm a big kaiju fan. Godzilla, King Kong movies like that. And when they they uh, they re-edited King Kong versus Godzilla, they re-edited a lot of these Godzilla movies when they bring them to the United States. And a big thing what they did. Uh, with the movies, they rescored it with uh, Universal is what brought it to the United States, King Kong vs. Godzilla. And and they, they threw out a lot of the score from Japan, and they put in a lot of the score from The Creature from the Black Lagoon. So, like, oh. I saw that. I grew up watching that movie since I was really little. And so, like, I always kind of identified that music from that movie. And then when I saw it in, this, in these, I'm like, oh, okay. <laughs> so uh, so, so th- that theme lives on even past these movies in King oh, Kong wow. vs. Godzilla. So check it out if you just can't get enough of that theme. <laughs> oh, I'm done. I'll never check it. I'm not a big Godzilla fan. I tried. I've tried to like Godzilla, but I just, mm-hmm. I just don't like Godzilla. 
Yeah, well, this came out actually the same year as Godzilla in Japan, 1954. So yeah, uh, so these are just as old. But uh, you know, the, the beginning of this movie is very interesting, right? Because it's like in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth, and then it kind of yeah. like has like the Big Bang and evolution. I was like, okay, you're just you're just, <laughs> you're just we're not offending there, anybody. Right? We are very Canadian <laughs> on the start of this film. <laughs> yeah, right. I was like, okay, that's an interesting way to go, kind of melding, uh, you know, religion and science. And uh, but this, this movie, it really does, and this is what I think sets it apart and above a lot of the other B movies. The it really tries hard to be scientific. You know, it talks about like missing links and fossils, yep. and like like they go out of their way to actually have some good conversations. But well, you have to date the rocks and the fossils and the uranium and all. I'm like, wow, this is like you know, you can learn. Uh, you shouldn't base your science knowledge off 50s sci-fi movies, but you can what? actually learn a lot. <laughs> no, you shouldn't do it. Okay, but y- I mean, there's actually some decent like science here, especially for the time. I thought. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I agree. You know, it was interesting. I'm like, what, like. It's it's not accurate, but it's they tried, you know. <laughs> yeah, yeah. It's like it's like Robinson Crusoe on Mars. Like I don't know if you remember the trailer for Robinson Crusoe on Mars. They're like, this is one hundred percent scientifically accurate, and there's like giant walls of fire on Mars and stuff like this. And it's like this is how it got its name, the Red Planet. But uh, they they tried in this era. They did the best that they could with what they had, and well, I, I well, think they, they did even- a pretty good job. They even talk about stuff like you know, when they're scuba diving, they're like, oh, you have to watch your ascent if you come up too yep. quickly. I'm like, that, that's like that's like good knowledge. But uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but you know, and you know, something else that kind of and you can see this the difference between this movie and the sequels. Like the sequels are what you think this movie is if you don't know what it is, uh, because like you know, like the love story and stuff. Like there's not really a love story or a love triangle uh, because the main characters they're like already in a relationship, you know. So there's not usually in a movie like this you have like the girl who just who's on the adventure and she falls in love with one of the five guys and, you know, he has to protect her and all this stuff. And they're already kind of together. So you skip a lot of that BS. So I I was like, Oh, that's a nice change to just change it up. Right. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Now, did you get impressions of like, inspiration from maybe King Kong in, in Oh, I totally. Now King Kong is my favorite film of all time. And like this that's what this movie totally is. It's like King Kong meets The Lost World which inspired King Kong because it takes Lost World as the uh, mm-hmm. uh Arthur Conan Doyle book that became a movie in the 20s that that takes place in the Amazon, right? Cuz cuz back then it's like the Amazon is this mystery place, anything is possible, right? <laughs> uh but yeah, no, it's very King Kong, right? Cuz you have you go into the the unexplored lost area of the world and you encounter a monster and it gets attached to a woman and they have to keep fighting the monster to keep the woman and he wants to keep them from escaping right and they want to bring him back and study him and we eventually get there in the sequels and stuff so it is very king kong i i, I think but it's it's enough of the elements are shifted around and mixed up enough it doesn't feel like a ripoff i don't think yeah yeah now um i remember that the 3d was very well done like it was very interesting to see this movie in in 3d but you know i'm not very familiar with the 3d craze of you know this era i know that 3d was kind of big in a couple of different periods like the you know the 50s and the 70s and you know it it kind of came back a couple of times and it never really stuck Mm -hmm. but i always find it very fascinating to see a black and white movie in 3d because 3d is designed in my opinion like this is my like it's designed to make it look more realistic. It's coming up for the screen. It, it makes you a little bit more. But if it's in black and white, you've already got that disassociation of it not being realistic because it's not in color. So, you know, this one, and I believe the second one as well, I don't think the third one, but the that's first correct. two of these films were filmed in 3D, and I think that's really fascinating. Uh, what do you what do you think about that? Do you think 3D, I know you didn't see it in 3D, but what do you think about 3D? 
Well, I, I'd never go see a movie in 3D if I can help it, <laughs> because it, I just I just don't I find it distracting a lot of the times mm-hmm. or gimmicky. You know, uh, you're right. There, there's like every 30 years or so, it seems like the 3D craze happens. Like the 50s, the 80s, then like the the early 2000s. Right? It's I, I think it's it's still kind of hanging around, but not so much anymore. Like yeah, I just I don't know. I don't need to see that. It's more like an amusement park ride kind of gimmick to me. Uh, I mean, I could take it or leave it, but if I have a choice. I usually wouldn't let see uh, a movie in 3D. But, hey, all power to them. That was very ambitious of them to do 3D in the 50s and underwater. Yeah. Right? I mean, <laughs> right? Like, 3D is hard enough to do as it is, and it would have been hard enough in the 50s when the technology is new. But on top of underwater photography, which, you know, we haven't even started to talk about that yet, but the underwater photography in this is, is amazing. And I think, like, that's part of the concept of the film and what makes the film so memorable is all these wonderful underwater photography. And I think that this is probably the best example of any movie to have underwater sequences up until this point. You know, like, they oh, did a yeah. really, really outstanding job with it. Up up until this point, absolutely. I mean, they did. Um, I believe Disney's Twenty Thousand Leagues on the Sea came out the same year. I believe it was nineteen fifty four, uh, and they were in color. And it's Disney money, even back then, Disney money, right? So they had they had yeah. underwater stuff. But even then, you know, it was it was like the guys in their suits just kind of trogging along, you know. But this this is like a guy in a monster suit fighting another guy in scuba diving, or multiple mm. people in scuba diving suits underwater. So it's exciting, you know, because usually underwater stuff, it, they have to do it slow and there's all these things, but they just went all out and, went, you know, did some great stuff. And then even the way the creature swims around, like all credit to Rico Browning, right? Because he, he could really move in that thing. Like he's hiding in the in the weeds. He like goes in lower into like crevices and stuff. Mm-hmm. And and it's it's it re- you really feel like, you know, sometimes you watch a movie and you're like, this was in a back lot in like a giant tub or tank. <laughs> yeah. And this one, even though, it, you know... It, you know, it kind of was, but they do a great job of like building the environment and and it, I believe this is a lagoon in the Amazon. Mm-hmm. Yeah. yeah, except that you know they would have one shot where the guy would be standing on his feet and then he'd jump in the water and it's like fifty feet deep and he's like swimming. <laughs> and, you know, there's, there's a couple of those shots. He but. was he was he was on a a, a crevice of some kind. Okay, yeah, <laughs> that that was cool though. Like how he had I like how creature had kind of his own lair. Like a, uh, like a grotto, I guess they call it, right under there. So uh, that was uh, that was that was pretty cool that you could, uh, you know, they dived underneath and then had and they established that for the climax. You know, like earlier he like disappears and they go walk around his cave. That's just a creepy place to be. Uh, and then they establish that for the climax. Now talk about a three D moment, right? Like I was like, why is there this random bird flying at the screen uh, at the end of the movie? I'm like, oh, that's right, 3D. it was three D. That felt so out of place. Yeah, the biggest 3D effect for me in the film is right at the beginning when the hand, they come across this, the fossil hand right at the beginning. Mm. Yeah. Like that in 3D was like really sticking out at you. Yeah, well, that is not how fossils work. Like, I, just... I know, I know. <laughs> I don't know. It's... Again, talk about they tried science, right? Yes, uh, yes. No, but I can, I can see how that's impressive because, you know, it's just jutting out and it's the hand. And, and yeah. you know, the, the design, right, for the Creature of the Black Lagoon, like that's, that's such a cool design because – you know when he's when he's swimming around, he looks great. Uh, when he's walking on land, how he breathes and how like his mouth opens and closes, like this really looks like a creature. Like it doesn't look like a guy in a suit. You know, uh, mm-hmm. I mean, I mean, but it was a very form fitting suit as well, so that probably helps. You don't see like I think about like a day the Earth stood still. You think of, like Gort the robot, like you see like the rubber and his knees bend, and you're like, oh okay, well you know the fifties, right? Uh, yes. But but this is this is an impressive looking uh, looking monster, I think. Yeah, I don't know. It's a I don't know. It's it's a man in a suit. 
<laughs> well, I love so. the Gorn from Star Trek too. I was I grew up watching the original series and the Magatu, the Gorn. So this is a good creature in in the uh, in that in that same vein. Uh, and so so Brandon, speaking of Star Trek, let me ask you this: Do you this reminds me of the Salt Vampire or the M one hundred thirteen creature right from the Man Trap? Okay. Uh, you can call him the creature from the Black Lagoon, or you call him the Gill Man. Which do you call him? I call him the creature. Yeah, I don't call him the Gill Man. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I didn't even know where the Gilman came from until I, you know, remembered watching the sequel, which we'll get into next time. Uh, yeah. But uh, I was like, oh, so that's because they never call him the Gilman mm-hmm. in this movie. Uh, it's kind of they kind of retroactively say, oh yeah, it's the Gilman. Like so, it's, yeah. I always just call him the creature. I know the creature's generic, but I call him the creature. So see, they totally need to do a sitcom of this where his name is just Gil. <laughs> right? Exactly, like Three's Company. You know, I don't know something like that. Where except it's like. <laughs> Gill's company or something like that. I don't know. <laughs> so, excellent. Right on. Well, uh, yeah, we're not going to make these episodes too in-depth. We're just going to kind of brush on the history and the topic of them. Zach, is there anything else in this film that we haven't addressed yet that you would like to talk about? No, just a couple quick things. I, I did I, – I thought that the, just the the, char- the makeup of the characters, like on the boat, like the Rita, right? You have the captain. You have, mm-hmm. like, the, the old British guy with the pipe. You have the young, sexy scientist. You have her boyfriend. You have the older kind of, like – sleazier scientist guy who's like out for the profit and then you know i mean like the, i think everybody was had a well-defined like character trait and they all interacted very well and they were kind of debating like we have to go we have to study things we're not equipped for this like i i like the interplay between these characters which in a lot of these 50s b sci-fi movies everyone is so bland and generic and like face palm inducing and hey we might talk about some of them coming up when we talk about oh, some boy. of these sequels we might but, we sure but, might. but uh but i really i really felt like it was a great cast of characters here and and that that made a big difference to, to kind of elevating what it's what's a pretty uh what a pretty standard plot uh, mm-hmm. And then, you know, the last question I'll pose to you and I'll wrap it up, Brandon, is the climax kind of underwhelming to you of the film? Um, it, you know what? Like, without spoiling anything, for all three of them, it is. <laughs> okay. You know, like, I don't know, like, because that's one of the weird things about movies of this era is they just end. Immediately. You know, like, <laughs> yeah, like, this guy just gets shot. Walks out to the beach and then like falls in the, walks into the water. And then this is one of those things where he walks out and then is just falling into something really, really deep. <laughs> and it's like, Oh, okay. It's done. Um, okay. I guess that's it. Um, but yeah, they are kind of over underwhelming because they happen so fast. You know, like I, I went, like things are going on and I'm like, I thought this movie was almost done. And then I checked what's left on my timer and it's like, it's like 30 seconds, seconds left to <laughs> this movie. And I'm like, what? Like, so I don't know. Like it, all three of them were kind of just abrupt and weird. And, and, uh, but I, that's kind of just how they did movies. You know, they didn't have like mm-hmm. long codas and eight minute, mm-hmm. you know, credit sequences and stuff like that. It's like movies done. Goodbye. Get out of the seat. So. Yeah, I mean the the build up to everything is very effective. Like like it takes your time to get to the creature and the the, the reveal like that you see the hands first and like clawing at stuff and that that all really works and then the meat of the movie works, you know, and it just da, 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 it's a really short movie too. It's 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 one hour and nineteen minutes. You know, yeah. it's just just barely over two hours. Uh, so it's like can tack on an extra thirty minutes uh, or so. But we can talk about that as we talk about the sequels and, and what ifs and, and things of that nature. But yeah, uh, well, yeah. if Peter Jackson remade this, he could have made it like three hours long. <laughs> that's right. He could have. Uh, but that's a discussion for for later on. Now, uh, <laughs> Brennan, uh, during during the podcast on the Black Lagoon here, I do have a death count. 
uh, in our in our tradition from uh, from Halloween H four O. We have uh, how many deaths do you think happen in this movie? Five people and one creature. I would guess you are correct. Well, the creature yes. it's always in mystery, so I don't I don't count him. But you're right. Uh, there there there's a total of five. You have the two native assistants in the tent at the beginning of the movie. You have uh, the crew member who uh, uh, who dies, and then his brother, who also dies uh, the, from the Rita. Uh, and then you have Mark, the uh, the older, more profit-driven, glory-driven scientist, uh, mm-hmm. dies as well. So uh, so not that big of a death count, but when there's when you think about how few characters there are, <laughs> that yes. is pretty sizable. So, all right. Excellent. Well, I guess we should probably give a rating to it too. You want to think, and then uh, you want to think you would give a rating for this. How many, uh, how many gills would you give this out of five? <laughs> gills. I, uh, I would give this three and a half gills out of five. Uh, I, I think it's the best universal uh, monsters of that era's horror movies. Uh, but at the same time, I mean, it is, it is, it is very fifties. You know, but I don't hold that against it. But it's just like you know, like we talk about, like the climax is kind of rushed. Certain things could have been better. But hey, three and a half out of five gills ain't bad, and that's what I'm giving the creature from the Black Lagoon. Okay, see, that's interesting. If you think this is the best and are only giving it three and a half, then you must not have a very high standards for the other ones, I guess. Hey, uh, well, uh, it's like, am I going to give this the same rating I give, like you know? Mission Impossible Fallout? No, <laughs> I mean, like the, to me, like there always has to be like I know you you kind of categorize you kind of compartmentalize your ratings and things. I try to think more like okay, if what is a three what is a three star movie? Like <laughs> this is an above average fun movie, so I think three and a half skills is appropriate. So okay, well then I'm gonna surprise you with my rating here because you know that I tend to give things high, and I would also give this a three and a half. So okay. um, I give it a three and a half, and it's not my favorite Universal horror movie. I think Dracula is my favorite, but it's been a while since I've seen that one. Um, so I would say I would probably have to give it to Dracula. Um, but it was—it's fun and it's a—it's entertaining. I definitely think it's the best of the three. And uh, you know, I'd throw it on for a good time with my kids because I think it's a great movie to watch with kids. It's just scary enough, and I think a lot of the scariness, you know, it. Because it it's shocking, it's surprising for young audiences, and and uh, and I love it for what it is. I think it's good. Good. Now, right on. Well, Zach, where can people find you when you're not killing people? When I'm not dun dun dun. And you can find me on Twitter at moronzach at m o r e o n z a c h. I'm also the host of my own podcast, Always on the Smallville. You can find us on Twitter at always smallville one one s. Talking about each and every episode of the Young Superman Show, Smallville. I'm also the host of Standard Orbit, Trek FM's original series podcast. You can find us on Twitter at Trek FM, talking about all things old and new, Captain Kirk and the Enterprise. And I'm also a co-host of Franchise Fatigue, where we talk about franchises and sequels and when they get fatigued uh, with my friend Ben and Shea Matilla. You may have heard of him. Uh, and you can find us on Twitter at UFP Earth. So, Brandon, when you aren't, uh, when you aren't uh, going down the Amazon River looking at stock footage of wild animals, where can people find you? You can find me on Twitter at Brandon Metella. And, uh, yeah, Franchise Fatigue with you. Uh, every once in a while I poke my head up on Warp 5 for Trek FM with Brandy and Patrick where we cover Star Trek Enterprise. And, uh, yeah, I got a few more, uh, melodic treks coming on the way. And I guess that's pretty much, oh yeah. And then, uh, if you like Hitchcock films, I do a podcast called uh, good evening, an Alfred Hitchcock podcast with my friends Chris and Tom, and we go through all the Alfred Hitchcock films one at a time. Well, you stay tuned to these feeds for the next installment of the podcast from the Black Lagoon, where we cover da, da, da. Revenge of the Creature. Da, da, da. Da, da, da.